According to George Morhan's interpretation of the myth of Inanna and Enki, in which Inanna takes the M.E. from Enki, the M.E. could be interpreted as the banners. This 1956 translation was later followed by Sitchin and others. His grandson, Ryan Morhan, also thinks this is the best evidence we have for the Anunnaki in Jerusalem. There is also the possibility that the M.E. is included in the definition of each of the disparate objects defined by these M.E.s. The mouth-opening rites, Kalosh, Akkadian Miss Pai, could have bestowed the divine essence upon a statue that was created by somebody else. According to legend, the goddess Inanna wore ornaments that contained the M.E. within their midst. As a direct consequence, she is stripped of all of her divine powers while on her journey. And Hedwana also recited all of the M.E. that were considered to belong to Inanna's domain of power during her nocturnal rite, in which she made them visible by naming them individually. The M.E. could have been other objects, such as the pawns placed on a gaming board and described in the Hittite language with the sumerogram M.E. In the Old Testament, there is a reference to a mysterious idea called Urim and Tumim. These two stones could be hidden in the breastplate of an Israelite high priest who could then use them to reveal the answers provided by Yahweh. Due to the lack of information, it is impossible to determine whether these oracular stones had anything to do with the M.E. from Mesopotamia. Sometimes a priest would throw a die after asking Yahweh a question, and the priest would either answer yes or no. Because the M.E. was considered part of the priests and priestesses' private law, likely non-initiated members of the community were never informed of its existence. The reign of God as king and the Anunnaki in Jerusalem. At the beginning of the second millennium, the Neo-Sumerian kings wrote a hymn in which they repeatedly asserted their ownership of the divine M.E. of kingship. In a hymn, King Lipit Ishtar is said to have documented the fact that subsequent kings of the Isin dynasty were also given the divine M.E. By this point, Enlil has drawn me to himself. However, Inanna never stops giving herself the impression that she is the mistress of an endless number of M.E. He approaches Enlil while he is in his temple, clutching a white kid and a lamb to his chest, and advances to the place of the royal offering of life, where he asks Enlil to bestow a prosperous future on him. The gods of Anuna have gathered around him where the fates are to be decided, because God has looked upon him with a flavor that lasts for a long time. The gods of heaven are standing around him because he has manifested all of the great divine powers. A dark eye falls upon Emidagan, and Enlil decides his destiny. Prince Emidagan, you will receive a throne that contains all of me. In a hymn to Inanna, King Urninurta of Jerusalem describes the goddess as taking his hand and leading him to the place where one's fate is decided, and the goddess makes the wish that, may you establish the powers of Iana to him. Urninurta, you can always and indefinitely rely on me to be your great wall. On models of clay livers, the priests may have used pawns to represent the decisions of the gods or stones placed on a gaming board, Dubnam Tara. All of these cases, however, require a description of what the M.E. consists of or how it looks. Urninurta has all of the M.E. after she gathered the Namtar of An and Enlil, authentication seals from Enki's presentations in Jerusalem. The divine kings received the M.E. of kingship from the gods and transmitted it to their subjects. The inscription on the cylinder seal states that the king has given this seal to his servant, Inna Naba, and perhaps the seals the king bestowed upon his servants symbolized his desire to involve them in his task, in recognizing the cosmic M.E. of kingship. 
In the seals, we see the king enthroned with an object in his hand that represents his power, a visible symbol to his servant, and almost certainly a symbol of his divine mandate. In realizing his divine mission and the object he holds up for them, a visible token of his ME, the king asked his servants to share his responsibility. There are times when the symbolic object looks like a vase or cup with the same shape as the cups of the participants in third millennium banquets. According to the seals of the Ur Three Kings, the king is the only one holding this cup since he is the source of its power. Sometimes the object resembles a stone, perhaps an image of the cylinder seal itself, on which it is written that the king gave it to his servant in a naba, the very object the king showed his paladin as a symbol of the ME. This symbol might have been used to seal the ME that the gods had decided for the people with a model liver or tablet of destinies. Anunnaki secret rites in Jerusalem. We have seen in previous chapters how Inanna fell in love with her shepherd Dumuzi after he lavished her with the riches of the fields. Their meeting symbolizes abundance, exuberant growth, and abundant harvests in nature and agriculture. Farmers and the king shared a common interest in a successful harvest of nature, and the king also participated in the generous gifts that only the goddess of sexual love could bestow. Her indulgence was in her power to ensure him a long and prosperous reign, and he needed it as much as anybody else. Thus, the king celebrated fertility rites in her temple so frequently that their realm flourished due to their frequent visits to her temple. Those gifts of abundance were only available to the fertility goddess, so she was worshipped with all the symbols of actual encounters. It was the same source from which the farmers in the villages had drawn since time immemorial, and the songs composed for the king were remarkably similar to the old songs about the love between the En and the Nin. The image depicted on the Uruk vase and the cylinder seals conveyed the same idea of a ritual encounter between the En and the Nin under the patronage of the love goddess Inanna, resulting in granaries packed to the same floor with the wealth that the goddess had at her disposal. Farmers developed those rituals to stimulate growth and prosperity when agriculture slowly spread throughout the Middle East around 8000 BC. Villagers performed a fertility rite that dates back to those practices in the earliest farming communities. Any desire of the people was given symbolic form and reenacted in some ritual configuration, expected to produce a concrete result, provided the prescribed action was meticulously followed. James Fraser gives many examples of magic rituals in his famous book, The Golden Bow. In some cultures, priests even prescribed intimate relations during the burial of seeds as a religious obligation. To enhance the fertility of nature, the villagers personified the powers of the plants in male and female characters and married them. May queens and may kings are late relics of these traditions, just as Easter brides and Easter grooms are in our day. After the development of cities, everything became more complicated and the on-ruler gained more and more power in these urban economies. He likely hid his previous relationship with the Nin priestess by seeking a relationship with the city goddess, who had taken on human features. Nin, who was Inanna's chosen husband, was left without a partner after sharing the nuptial bed with the Enki-style ruler. In the meantime, the Enki-style ruler carried out the rituals he had initially carried out with the Nin priestess as Inanna's husband. Now, farmers chanting about the Enruler and his divine spouse Inanna are singing about the Enruler and his love for the Nin. 
It is possible that she was the stand-in wife for the temple's god's divine heavenly spouse, the temple's human consort. These rituals, so profoundly rooted in Sumerian culture, greatly influenced the king. Since he was the consort of Inanna, he identified himself with her fiancé, Dumuzi, who was no hero by any means but rather a terrified and defenseless victim, hunted down by the Galademons and murdered. He avoided identifying with the Dumuzi, who was beaten to death by the demons because his role in the fertility rite was crucial to him. As long as Dumuzi remained in the realm of the dead, he could influence the king's favor during the wedding night with the mighty love goddess Inanna. While Dumuzi wandered about the steppe, he sometimes appeared to have close ties to the palace in the songs. While Dumuzi is dead, the king performs the sacred marriage rite with Inanna on behalf of Dumuzi as his incarnation, as in the hymn Dumuzi and Inanna Y. The goddess calls her groom and asks him to come to her house, telling him she has pulled the bolt across to let him in, and while the names Dumuzi and Inanna aren't actually mentioned in this hymn, we can assume that they are the protagonists, since the language and expressions do indeed correspond to the other love lyrics of Dumuzi and Inanna. The events of Dumuzi's imprisonment, which has now been located as under the sacred walls of Jerusalem, and his release by the Anunnaki of Jerusalem, serve as a reminder that it was Inanna's fault that the Gala demons took him to the underworld. What will happen to us if you are captured? Come into our house now that they've let you go. A cry of desperation escapes Inanna's lips. Inanna provides him with a bright future, with an ending that legitimizes his position with the goddess's backing. I pray that your mouth is always satisfied with your kind words. Let your face shine and be a shining mirror for the world as you continue to rule. May your reign bring forth happy days. Spend the night with us because evening is the most pleasant time. I pray that the wrath of your God will be appeased towards you, beloved of Enlil. May your God pave your road. May he level the depths and hills for you, says the proverb, and embrace the sun and stay with it. The goddess likens her female genitals to fertile arable land that has been properly irrigated, and she asks, Who will be the plowman for my genitals and the maidens? Who, my lady, would ever put an ox on the ground that has been watered and kept like that? The goddess was heard to exclaim. As a result of the embrace of Inanna, the fruits of the land begin to sprout up, as she leaves the king's embrace, she rises with the flax and the barley, transforming the desert into a magnificent garden. In another song, a priest inquires Inanna whether she will use her breasts to water the fields. You must let your breasts be your fields, mistress. Inanna, make your breasts your fields, your vast fields that overflow with linen, your vast fields that produce grain. The water should be allowed to flow from them. Bring it forth from them for the benefit of the man. Please don't stop the flow from them, man. I will hand you this beverage to take care of the particular gentleman. In Greek, hieros gamos means sacred marriage and refers to the meeting between king and goddess. Zeus's first divine wife, Hera, was known by this name in classical Greek mythology. The Sumerian pantheon holds Inanna in a unique position, as she has no divine consort but rather a human shepherd named Dumuzi, who was identified with the city ruler and then the king. Inanna was the only pantheon goddess who could marry the monarchs because she was their proper spouse. Dumuzi was replaced by the kings of the Ur III dynasty, who called themselves the husbands of Inanna Anunitum. According to these kings, marriage conferred divine status on them. Several hymns of the kings of Ur III are explicit about the goddess. 
The hymn to Inanna Dilbat and the sacred marriage of Idin Dagan suggest intercourse with the goddess. I lie on Inanna's splendid bed strewn with pure Gina Girinna, as the Lord of Arata mentioned in the story of the Lord of Arata and Enmakar. In Ishtar's ritual, the king may sleep on Ishtar's bed, but much earlier than usual in the morning, he must be awoken to prepare breakfast for her. As described by Urnama, the Gippar has the Girinna blossoms lying nearby. The linen garment I wore in Jerusalem for the Anunnaki pantheon, I dozed off while still sitting on the fruitful bed, Jina to Jinna. The destruction of Sumer and Ur is lamented in a text that describes a heavenly bed in the bedroom of the moon god, where musicians used to play the drum, a ball, when there was peace. The kings in the praise songs played the part of Inanna's dearest husband. A heavenly bride's wedding gifts were loaded onto the king's ship in Kulab. In the same manner as Dumuzi, he came to Uruk wearing a linen garment and a unique crown of gold on his head, asking for Inanna's hand. In their royal hymns, the kings praise Inanna's thighs and the fact that she shared her marriage bed with them. Inanna prays. It is also mentioned in the hymn that the bed is prepared on the day of the moon's disappearance, which is New Year's Day. Although the king's name is not mentioned, he may very well be one of the Isin kings. Idin Dagane describes the bed preparation on the day of the moon's disappearance. On the day of the event, when the moon was no longer visible, on the day he examines the sofa, the Lord will make love. On the day he examines the sofa, the Lord will make love. Give life to the Umun and hand over the crook, Sibir, and the staff, Ekiri. It's the Umun. The name of Inanna is not mentioned either. The only word that appears is In, which could be translated as Queen, but it may also refer to an earlier time when the Nin participated in fertility rites with the En. She has this strong desire to sit on the couch. She craves the couch, which brings her heart's greatest joy. The couch is what she craves. She is the one who pines for the warm embrace of the couch, and she is the one who pines for the couch. Her heart is set on the kingly couch, and her heart is set on the couch. Her heart's desire is to sit on the throne-worthy sofa. Ninwuba, the outstanding minister of Iana, you have my highest respect. I salute you. The king takes hold of Inanna's right hand and is brought into a state of rapturous bliss as he is drawn into her embrace. May the Lord, whom you have chosen in your heart, the king, your beloved husband, enjoy long days in your holy and sweet embrace. He ought to bequeath a prosperous and famous reign, a throne of kingship that is permanently frozen, the staff and crook that are used to guide the Anunnaki lands in Israel, and the righteous headdress and crown that are used to glorify the head. The sun travels from south to north, corresponding to the upper sea to the lower sea, as it rises and sets. Sumer and Akkad bestow upon him the crook and the staff in the place where the halupu tree and the cedar grow. I pray every day that he will lead the people with blackheads as a shepherd. Is it possible for him, in his capacity as a reliable shepherd, to increase the number of sheepfolds as though he were a farmer? There follows an endless list of the extraordinary fate determinations the goddess has in store for the king. Most of these are related to the uncertainty that haunts every farmer day and night due to the harvest from the fields, orchards and fishing. According to legend, the goddess granted the king's wishes despite the high water levels of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. Inanna's priests could infer these predictions from the liver of lambs they offered, or from the Gami, a union that takes place between a god and a goddess. 
Other Sumerian cities also had marriage rituals, but their monarchs did not serve as the city goddess's husbands. Instead of marrying the city god and goddess, God provided wedding gifts for his divine wife. We have an extensive report from Gudea of Laga, circa 2100 BC, in which he describes how he arranged the marriage between Ningirsu, the city god, and Bao, the goddess. In Cylinder B, we find out that Gudea ordered the bed in Ningirsu's temple to be covered with girina plants. At the same time, Ningirsu enters his temple as an eagle, with its eyes fixed on a wild bull, and Bao enters her bedroom to wait for the arrival of her divine husband, Ningirsu. Going to the area designated for women in her home allowed Bao to assert her authority over the household. She went into her bedroom as high tide was approaching on the Tigris. As she sat next to him, she thought, she was the daughter of the Holy Anne and resembled a verdant garden that bore fruit. As soon as daylight broke, her fate was decided. When Bao entered her women's quarters in the land of Lager, she found plenty of food and other supplies. Utu of Lager raised his head above the land as the sun rose. It was the beginning of the day. This throne served as the holy seat of An and was located in the Gwena Hall, which was the assembly of dead-in rulers. While positioned within the bedroom on the bed, a young cow has been kneeling in its sleeping place, where fresh herbs have been scattered across its quilt. Mother Bao was dozing off peacefully as Lord Ningirsu tended to her needs at her side. A seal cutter faced the challenge of illustrating the abstract concept of fertility without using words. An ancient symbol of fertility was the scorpion, which was used to solve this problem. Although scorpions can be very dangerous and their venomous sting can kill a small child, they were a powerful symbol of fertility in ancient times. A seal in the Ur Cemetery depicts two scorpions performing a love dance, and between them, a star with eight beams, perhaps a pictures that appear to express the same concept of a sacred marriage, but using human figures were made on impressions of cylinder seals, originating from northern Mesopotamia of unknown provenance. A goddess, king, or god could represent fertility when the gods acquired human features. There is an eight-beam star between them. There are no hymns about a marriage night between a god and a non-priestess, but Enheduanna refers to herself as the wife, Dam, of the moon god. This is because Enheduanna lived in the Gipar, where Ningal, the wife of Nana, also had a temple. This allowed Enheduanna to have a special relationship with the divine spouse of God in her temple. A stele from Urnama suggests that the sacred marriage was not performed between the human en-priestess and the moon god, but between the moon god and his heavenly consort, Ningal. This is evidenced by two tiny feet on the moon god's lap, belonging to Ningal, Jenny Canby's reconstruction of the scene. After he has taken her on his lap in a loving union, a vase of fresh water spouts abundantly from it, a sign of fertility and welfare for the country of Israel. In some pictures, a god is shown with a goddess sitting on his lap. In the city of Lager, a door plaque was discovered that depicted a goddess sitting on the lap of a god. The ruler of the city, Gudea, who we have already met, engraved an inscription dedicated to the goddess Bao next to the goddess. This couple likely represents Bao and Ningirsu, who are the city gods. Tali Ornan believes that the young calf in front of them represents fertility, like the vase with spouting water represents fertility, reproduction, and life. This scene is depicted on another terracotta plaque, whose origin is unknown. On this plaque, 
a goddess is shown sitting lovingly around the neck of a god. The goddess wears a crescent on her crown, symbolizing Nana, the moon god. This indicates that she must be his spouse. In the songs about Dumuzi and Inanna, Dumuzi almost always sits, crawls or dances on Inanna's lap. However, a god always ranks higher than a goddess, regardless of how high she is in the god's world. According to Ornan, sitting on a god's lap symbolizes the close relationship between god and the goddess. Although both the man and the woman are dressed in the sacred Kaunaki's mantle, which would indicate a religious meaning, it is not likely that the goddess Ishtar is being depicted. Instead, it could be the king and his queen. The embrace would refer to fulfilling marital hygieia. A statue of Ishtar was found in Mari's temple of Ishtar, which dates from the beginning of the third millennium, as we have seen. In a cylinder from the third millennium, there is a seal that depicts a man and woman at a banquet. The couple was also meant to convey marital happiness as a metaphor for nature's flowering abundance. The two men hold a cup with a long drinking tube, the end of which is inserted into a typical beer vessel. Copper tubes used in ritual banquets have sometimes been found in temples. As Herodotus describes the ziggurat of Babylon, God still visited the building regularly to meet his wife, represented by a human woman, in the first millennium. The shrine does not have an image, and only one Assyrian woman spends the night alone, according to the Chaldeans, who are Bel's priests. I do not believe the Chaldeans when they say that God enters the temple in person and rests on the bed in the temple. The temple is a square building with bronze gates two furlongs long in each direction, the Anunnaki goddess in Jerusalem. Some love songs about Inanna and the king have the courtly allure of the palace, and they are written from the female perspective, with the woman praising her own body and inviting the king to plough her field. A number of the love lyrics about Dumuzi and Inanna were written by these hagiographers. During the time of Pharaoh Akhenaten, many love songs were composed in Egypt with a new interest in natural and intimate emotions. In these poems, women and men referred to each other as brothers, sen, and sisters, senet. We have examples of Egyptian harem women playing music, dancing, and writing poetry from the second millennium. Throughout the course of the celebration, the ointment cones slowly melted, releasing a strong scent that was comparable to our perfume. The songs were popular and were known as the great entertainment. Fox believed it less likely that some of the poems were written by women, even though the scribes of the manuscript were always men. This allowed for the translation of the great entertainer. The rite of the marriage night was more than just about lust or desire for the king and his subjects. It resulted in benign results. Like other fictions the kings spread about themselves, the rite also had a symbolic meaning. For example, a king might claim to be the son of a city god, or descended from legendary ancestors with whom he had a confidential relationship. The joke that Gilgami made about the sacred marriage. There is no record of an Inanna king marriage after the Neo-Sumerian kings and the ascendancy of the Hammurabi dynasty despite a text of a sacred marriage rite between Inanna and King Sam-Uiluna, 1749-1712 BC, the son and successor of King Hammurabi of Babylon. This hymn was inspired by Inanna Dilbat's and King Idindagan's hymns. She embraces him with tenderness, certain that he will prevail in his fight against his adversaries. After the old Babylonian era, the kings no longer went to the temple of Inanna to spend the nuptial night with her, and Dumuzi no longer received their offerings.
Some scholars think that the decline in the on priestess's institution indicates that the on priestess played an important role in the sacred marriage rite. However, the disappearance of this. A few months later, the final revision of the Gilgamesh epic was published, making fun of the institution of the sacred marriage. Perhaps the king no longer believed that engaging in natural loving activity with Inanna was decent. In Tablet 6, there is a peculiar episode in which Inanna falls in love with Gilgamesh and asks him to marry her. The fantastic thing is that Gilgamesh rejects her request and insults her. You are not fit to be my wife. Please come to Gilgamesh. I will make you my husband, and I would like to kiss your lips if you don't mind. I will be your wife, and you will be my husband, and I will construct a chariot out of lapis lazuli and gold for you, complete with golden wheels and gemstone fittings. When you enter our home, you will be greeted by the aroma of cedar, and you will be tasked with taming storm demons like you would giant mules. As soon as you enter our house, you will have kings, nobles and princes prostrate themselves before you at the splendid exotic door sill. They will bring you gifts from the high and lowlands as a token of gratitude. You will have triplets on your goats, twins on your ewes and triplets on your chickens. Your pack-laden donkey will pass the mule, your horses will gallop proudly in front of the wagon and your ox in a yoke will be unrivaled. On the other hand, Gilgamesh is unimpressed by Ishtar's proposal and instead recalls her previous lovers, each of whom she cruelly treated in some way. Gilgamesh readied himself to have a conversation with Princess Ishtar. What gifts should I give you if I decide to make you my wife? Would you like a headdress or clothing for yourself? What about some bread or a drink? Would you like a meal fit for a god? How about a drink fit for a queen? And is it all right if I bind you? This is for a garment. May I pile it on? If I were to marry you, what would I get in return? When you get too cold, you have to go outside. In the palace, a flimsy door that lets in neither wind nor draught and can easily be pushed through by a warrior. Mice that chew through their housing, tar that smears their carriers, and other such annoyances. A soggy coat that drenches its wearer, a flimsy stone that brings down a structure, etc. Do you have a long-term lover? A battering ram that breaks down walls for your adversaries, shoes that pinch the person who wears them. Do you? Your admirers demand an answer. Which hero died and went to heaven? What was his name? Those lines seem like a humorous parody of the sacred marriage, with the goddess asking the king to visit her in her cedar-scented temple, reminiscent of the reed hut with girina plants. Her promises of abundant crops, wealth and glory are accompanied by reminders of the fate of her lovers. They all died or became animals. Gilgamesh reminds her of the fate of her lovers. Astonishingly, Inanna's scornful reaction reverts the account of Inanna's story, but the author of the updated Gilgamesh Epios must have been less than impressed by Inanna's lover's fates. There is a reference to Dumuzi and Ukalatuda in Gilgamesh, among other obscure examples of which we know little, while the painful image of Dumuzi being hunted down and killed by the Gala demons must still be fresh in his mind. As evidenced by the poem in which she apparently has sex with 120 men, Inanna had also acquired some other demonic characteristics by this time. She was no longer the goddess who supported the king on the battlefield by cutting off enemy heads, but a goddess who is always looking for pleasure in relations. Akkadian poets continued the Sumerian tradition of writing sensual love lyrics after Sumerian hymns ceased to be written in Sumerian. A king's role remained fundamental, 
and chest songs were written in old Babylonian literature. Library collections of these songs were categorized as Irtum, Akkadian, chest. The name chest song is likely to have been accompanied by a flute because it appears in various expressions. There are many chest songs whose texts have been lost, but a catalogue of hymns has been preserved, including the first line of each song. The songs must have been filled to the brim with sensuality. This Akkadian love song tells the story of a woman in love, and the Sumerian tradition of choral dialogue lives on. New Year's Day is also celebrated during this period. In a text, the king who succeeded the Isin dynasty in 1882 BC is described as having chosen an ordinary woman from Lhasa as his consort, rather than the goddess Inanna. An exclamation can be heard coming from the choir, Today is the first day of the month of Nisan, which marks the beginning of a new year, an indication that spring has finally arrived, since we never stopped praying for him. It has been a very long time since we last saw him. I pray that you have a long life and that you never die. Pour some sparkling wine for me to celebrate the new year, because, as a result, our sun god, Rimsin, is overflowing with joy. In Uruk, the goddess Nanaya is an alter ego of the goddess Inanna, and she appears in a chest song that praises the Babylonian king Samsuiluna, 1749-1712 BC. In another Irtum song, the Babylonian king Amiditana, 1683-1647 BC, plays the lover of Inanna, who grants him eternal life. This song may have been written when Amiditana renewed Inanna's temple in Kish. Another love poem was found on a tablet close to the ziggurat in Kish, whether this is a religious or profane text written in Akkadian during the first part of the old Babylonian period before Hammurabi's dynasty is still being determined. The tablet may have been part of a magician's arsenal to help people with their love problems. While I make love to you on your gentle lap, your heartbeat sounds like music to my ears. During the morning slumber, the sweetness of your caresses is exquisite. Your fruit grows in a very healthy manner, Incense with a baluku scent is burned on my bedside table. By the tiaras atop our heads and the hoop earrings adorning our ears, our shoulders are mountains, our chests are charms, and the bracelets with date spadix charms that adorn our wrists are mountains. The rituals that were performed during holy marriages in the first millennium. The wedding rites shifted from the royal to the divine sphere during the first millennium, and the king and goddess were no longer married. Temple servants played an important role during Babylonian marriage ceremonies, but priestesses were not involved in any way. According to letters written during that period, a bedroom was allegedly found in the inner part of the temple complex during the reign of Asurbanipal, 669-627 BC. The priests made up the bed for Nabu's fian. Encouraged by the choir, Nabu asks Tametu why she adorned herself so splendidly. She says she will go to the garden with him and sulks because her throne is not placed next to his advisers. Among his advisers, Nabu promises to set up her throne first. Tazmetu then demands to see the fruit picked and hear the birds twittering, and Nabu agrees to all of her requests. According to Marty Nissinen, the sacred marriage ritual, divine love and eroticism can all be found in these songs, which contain the lyrics of Dumuzi and Inanna, strikingly similar to the lyrics of Nabu. There is a direct appeal to the senses in all of these songs. The cella of the goddess Papahum and the garden are symbols of paradise, a space that knows nothing of suffering and death, only pure blessings and pleasure. 
The songs of Nabu and Tazmetu mention fruit trees, cedars and cypresses, with the same beauty as King Ulgii was compared with the date palm. Sweet fragrances permeate the air, creating a setting conducive to chance meetings and serving as a metaphor for love at the same time. During the first millennium BCE, almost all of the significant gods participated in a ceremony known as the Sacred Marriage Rite. Asur's temple was the location of the rite between Mulisu and Asur between the 17th and 22nd days of Sebat, the 11th month. This ritual was known as the Kursu Rite. Kuru is a fertility rite derived from the verb garai, which means to have relations with or to copulate with another person. The Assyrian king and other court members made offerings to the temple, but not in his capacity as the husband of Marduk and Zarpanita, were married in Babylon by a rite called Hasadu, marriage. These gods' statues probably played an essential role in this ritual. King Asabanipal, 668-627 BC, asked the goddess to intercede on his behalf before God, asking that he be granted a long life. Despite the king's importance, the goddess must intercede on behalf of her divine husband. Through him, the community of worshippers will benefit from the divine. Me and the tablet containing destiny and Hedwana addresses Inanna as the mistress of endless M.E. in Ninmisara, enumerating all possible M.E. within Inanna's domain, which may be read as a general abstract power that Inanna possesses. It is challenging to visualize this in me. In some hymns, the M.E. appears as tangible objects that the gods could hold in their hands. Enheduana addresses Inanna as the mistress of endless M.E. in Ninmisara. The M.E. makes the power of Inanna appear as if she were wearing jewels all over her body. It is revealed to us in the myth of Inanna's journey to the underworld that she brought her seven M.E.s with her on the journey. A different interpretation of the M.E. can be found in a myth involving Ninurta and the nefarious bird Imdugud, stealing Enki's Tablet of Destinies, also known as Dubnamtara. The archer Ninurta tries to retrieve the tablets with the assistance of his bow. Fear causes Imdugud to let go of the M.E., and as a result, it and he both fall into the Abzu, which is where Enki had been keeping a watchful eye on the M.E. Imdugud tells Ninurta all about the Anunnaki in Jerusalem. Your weapon maliciously attacked me in response to his command. When I released their grasp, the M.E. returned to the abdominals. It arrived back at the Abba, is her, in a state of letting go when it returned. This tablet of destinies was given to Ab, also known as Dubnam Tara. The fact that I was even me was taken away from me. As a direct consequence, there is only one tablet of destiny. Me is a detachable accessory that is packaged alongside the tablet. In a very old hymn to Ninurta, which has been severely damaged, there is mention of many M.E., even fifty, literally, House the Happy Hand. Some myths emphasize the number of me that Inanna stole from Enki and brought back to Uruk in the story of Inanna and Enki. In this story she stole more than one hundred M.E. from Enki. All of these pieces of evidence point to the fact that there was an active tradition of marriage between city gods and goddesses in Uruk during the first millennium. This tradition must have continued the king's celebration in the temple of Inanna at the beginning of the second millennium with the goddess Inanna. There was a lively tradition of marriage between city gods and goddesses in Uruk during the first millennium. There is a reference in the Old Testament to the festivities in Susa to commemorate the marriage of the goddess Nanaya and King Antiochus IV. 
These festivities took place in the Old Testament. It is believed that King Antiochus IV Epiphanes broke into the temple of Narnia in Persia in 164. He intended to marry the goddess to obtain the considerable treasures housed within the temple. To put it another way, he has the potential to steal from the temple. He was killed there after walking into the trap set for him in the temple. When King Antiochus's army arrived in Persia, the temple of Nanea was where they were slaughtered due to a treacherous act committed by the priests who served the goddess Nanea. When King Antiochus went to the temple to marry the goddess, he brought several of his most trusted advisers. Then, as a wedding present for the goddess, he brought many of the temple's treasures back to his home. After the priests had distributed the treasure throughout the temple, he and a few of his other men went around and picked it up. Stones were thrown at him and his men by priests, who then shut the doors behind them. After the bodies had been dismembered, the heads were tossed to the people who were standing outside. Praise God that those wicked men were made to suffer the consequences of their actions. Because he has done so much for you, you owe him a lot of gratitude. There are some questions about whether or not this account is true, even though Antiochus did not pass away in the temple, but rather from a disease. On the other hand, the Seleucid Empire, which existed from 311 to 63 BC, kept in mind the practice of royal couples getting married in temples. In the Eastern Mediterranean, the substantial poetry tradition has been preserved in only a minuscule fraction of its original form. Nissinen thinks these songs are part of a royal courtly tradition because they strongly emphasize the king's well-being. In the first millennium, ancient marriage metaphors were still used to express the legal bond between the king and the divine, which was still a part of a royal ideology. This legal bond was compared to a marriage. Even though the goddess's legal husband, the city god, had severed all sexual ties with the goddess and her kingdom, the king and his kingdom continued to enjoy success. There was no conclusion to the love songs that Inanna and Dumuzi had composed for one another because they were passed down from generation to generation, evolving and transforming with time. As we continue, we will examine how these verses ended up in the Song of Songs, which is still performed today. Does the Song of Songs contain any allusions or references to Inanna in Jerusalem? The Book of Song of Songs in the Old Testament is home to some of the most exquisite examples of poetry written during ancient times. In these late Hebrew texts from around 300 BC, a young woman expresses her joy at being loved by her beloved. It is essential to explain the background of these songs and the reasons behind their inclusion in the Bible as opposed to other religious books from the Old Testament. This magnificent poem contains several themes with which we are already acquainted as a result of our study of the chapters that came before it, and the Song of Songs has some fascinating parallels with ancient lyrics from other Middle Eastern cultures. The Song of Songs is divided into eight chapters, the first titled, She. Your mouth is one part of your body that I would adore kissing. Your love, the anointing oils, and your name are why the maidens adore you. Come with me, let's not waste any time. The king has led me into the king's chambers here in this castle. Because of your presence, our exultation and joy will be filled to the brim. Your love will be praised more than wine, and they will love you because it is right for them to do so. I am a very dark but beautiful daughter of Jerusalem, much like the tents found in Kedar. Solomon's Curtains My skin has darkened due to exposure to the sun for a long time. As a consequence of their wrath, 
My mother's sons appointed me as the keeper of the vineyards. However, I have never maintained my own vineyard. Please enlighten me as to whether or not you are the one I love with all of my being. When you take your flock to pasture, you should ensure they lie down at noon. Why should I become one of them, rather than a stray among your flocks when I could be a wanderer? It was indeed he. If you are unsure, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. You should pasture your children next to the shepherd's tents if you take them along the paths they use. If I were to compare myself to you, my darling, I would be nothing. Pharaoh had a mare that pulled his chariot when he was in power. The jewels you wear around your neck and the ornaments you wear on your cheeks make you look stunning. You will have ornaments crafted out of silver and gold made specifically for you. The female. While the king was relaxing on his couch, the room's aroma filled my sense of smell. When I close my eyes, I picture a bag of myrrh between my breasts. My impression of the vineyards of Engedi is that they look like clumps of henna flowers. It was indeed he. Darling, my love for you is limitless and without boundaries. You hold a very special place in my heart. You hold a very special place in my heart. I love you very much. Your eyes are like doves. The female. My sweetheart, there is nothing more stunning than you and nothing more endearing than you. The couch that we have is a forest green color. In our home, pine rafters and cedar beams are in the ceiling. The first part of Song of Songs shows a raging longing in the girl's heart for her beloved. Return, O Ulamite, so that we can see you. The Song of Songs comprises monologues and dialogues that do not indicate who is speaking or when. Her title is Hulamit, which means one who belongs to Ulim. She has no proper name but is called one who belongs to Ulim. He and she captions are added depending on the gender of the Hebrew form. Aulamit refers to her beloved, and at other times she addresses a choir of Daughters of Jerusalem or Daughters of Zion. The other choir members either exclaim their approval or ask the girl questions while offering encouragement, saying, I adjure you, O Daughters of Jerusalem. My beloved would appreciate it if you let him know if you found him and found him safe and sound. Love has made me sick. As the young lady savors the flavor of his ripe fruits on her tongue while sitting in his shadow, she will continue to gush about how handsome her partner is. Then she became aware of the sound of her love emanating from a great distance. Her winter is over, he tells her. If you should run into my dearest O daughters of Jerusalem, I beg you to pay attention to what she says. While he draws closer, jumping over the crests of the hills and scaling the heights of the mountains, like a gazelle or a young stag, my beloved is like a gazelle. He is hiding behind our wall right now, taking in the view of the windows through the lattice. It is the voice of my beloved that calls out to me and tells me, Arise, my love, my fair one, leave. Both winter and the rainy season have come to an end. The song of the turtle dove can be heard resonating throughout the world as the flowers begin to bloom. It is heard in our land. The fig tree is responsible for the production of figs. There is a scent floating through the air produced by the vines. Get out of here, my love, you beautiful creature. At night, when I was in bed, I looked for my significant other but couldn't find him. I looked everywhere for him, but I couldn't find him. He is the one who completes my being. I looked everywhere for him, but I couldn't find him. I called him, but he didn't pick up, so I'm going to stroll through the city's neighborhoods and public spaces now. After looking for him and being unable to find him, I will look for him again. It was the security officers who ended up discovering me. 
Their travels throughout the city were distinguished by other aspects of their behavior. After barely getting by them, he questioned, Have you seen him whom my soul loves? As soon as I saw him, my very being fell in love with him. While holding him, I couldn't let go of him. I waited to introduce him to my mother's household until after she had given birth to me in her bedroom. O oh, daughters of Jerusalem, the gazelles and the hinds that live in the field have some advice for you. Do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready to be stirred up and awakened. The only other well-known name in the Song of Songs is King Solomon, who is mentioned five times. Neither Yahweh nor any other god is mentioned in the Song of Songs, nor do prophets draw moral lessons from them. The choir describes King Solomon's chariot and the crown he was crowned with by his mother on the day of his wedding. A column of smoke rises from the wilderness. Having a scent reminiscent of myrrh and frankincense, it's not the fragrant powders from the merchant, it's Solomon's litter. It is surrounded by sixty strong men of Israel, all armed with swords. A specialist in combat, in defiance of the nighttime alarms, each with his sword drawn and positioned at his thigh, Solomon fashioned a palanquin for himself out of the timber of Lebanon. For this purpose, silver posts were crafted. It was crafted carefully, as evidenced by the gold on its back and the purple on its seat. Behold, Jerusalem's daughters, King Solomon stands before you, O Zion's daughters. On his wedding day, his mother gave him a crown and crowned him. On the day of his gladness, his heart was filled with joy. Is there sanctity in marriage? Despite its sensual erotic content, the Song of Songs lacks religious, theological, or miracle didactic content. Like the other Bible books, the Psalms are religious poems, not chronicles or prophecies. How did these erotic songs escape the harsh scrutiny of the austere, puritanical rabbis who insisted on chastity, virginity, and sexual purity? In the 1950s, Theophile Meek proposed a theory regarding where the Song of Songs originated. According to him, this fertility cult was celebrated in an ancient Hebrew liturgy that was modified and conventionalized in the Song of Songs. Nomadic Hebrews had inherited this cult from their urbanized Canaanite neighbors, who borrowed it from the Akkadian Tammuz Ishtar cult, a modified form of the Sumerian Inanna and Dumuzi cult. In these songs, a king and a women's choir played the similarly, Meek discovered the same motifs in the Song of Songs, and explained that Tammuz Dumuzi is described as a shepherd and a king in the cuneiform documents. Several metaphors include gazelles, grapes, raisins, myrrh, wine pomegranates, apple trees, olive trees, cypresses, and the girls' dance. The surnames the lovers give each other are similar to those used in Dumuzi and Inanna, where the beloved is both a bride and a sister. Ulamit longs for her beloved, just as Inanna longs for her shepherd Dumuzi, lying on her bed with sweet-smelling girina plants, and comparing him to a date palm. Ulamit describes her beloved with the same metaphors, an apple tree and green foliage surrounding the bed. The lovers desire to go to the garden to lie in each other's arms. Among your shoots you will find pomegranates groaning under the weight of all of their fruit, henna infused with nard, and even more. The refrain of these lines is similar to one she sang with her friend in the wine house, he brought me to the banquet house. The phrase appears twice in the Song of Songs and sounds almost exactly the same as it does in the lyrics of Inanna and Dumuzi. Sefati refers to this Balbale as the woman's oath because the woman demands of her lover. Your right hand should be placed on my nakedness and your left hand should be placed on my head. It was love that served as his banner and draped itself over me.
because being in love makes me sick. I need raisins to keep me going and apples to help me feel better. I could feel his left hand under my head and his right hand was on top of me as he hugged me. Iterates the Ulamit, which is, I could feel his left hand under my head and his right hand was on top of me as he hugged me. Then he brought me to the gate of the Lord's house that faced northward and there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Ezekiel recorded that the prophets passionately denounced the cult of Dumuzi. Why did these songs end up in the Old Testament if they recall a sacred marriage ritual that was an abomination to the Lord? Kramer believes that Yahweh played the role of Dumuzi in the Song of Songs and married the goddess of love. The omission of Yahweh in the Song of Songs leads him to this conclusion. Additionally, we know that Dumuzi wasn't initially a god, but rather a mortal king who married Inanna for the sake of his people and land. Kramer writes that Solomon, the Hebrew king, must have been married to Astarte for the same reason. Solomon would have married Astarte. Due to Solomon's reputation as a lover, the Song of Songs acquired the subtitle, The Song of Songs. Kramer compares Solomon with the Sumerian king Susin, who was highly favored by the ladies in his harem. Kramer explains that just as the rabbis believed Moses wrote the Torah and King David wrote the Psalms, they also believed King Solomon wrote the song. Despite its superficial frivolity and sensuality, a book authored by such a noble and revered king as Solomon must have deep religious significance and profound spiritual values. To uncover the allegories intended by the devout and inspired Solomon, it was only necessary to disregard their ostensibly literal meaning and look for the meaning behind the meaning. In the Song of Songs, Yahweh is the lover, not some ruddy, flowing-locked, sweet-mouthed youth. The people of Israel, Yahweh's bride and spouse, were not a fair maiden with curly hair, scarlet lips, jewel-like thighs, or a goblet around her navel. The sacred marriage was reinterpreted by the rabbis. According to them, the book allegorized the Israelites' sacred marriage between Yahweh and his people, Fox believes that the opening verse may be attributed to Solomon, but it was added later, and he believes that the title Solomon's Song of Songs was the first step in making the book religiously acceptable. Solomon was a logical choice as the author of the Song of Songs, because his name appears in the book several times, he loved many women, and he composed songs. However, Fox believes that the title Solomon's Song of Songs was the first step in making the book religiously acceptable. Keepers were given responsibility for the vineyard. To purchase the fruit, each person was required to bring 1,000 pieces of silver, and I had a mini vineyard in front of me. You must have a thousand, King Solomon. 200 individuals are allowed to keep the fruit of it. Those who love are more important than kings because they are noble and royal. Her bed, fragrant with sweet-smelling leaves, is compared to the king's bed and his many rooms, just as her lover is like King Solomon. Additionally, he compares himself to Solomon and competes with the king for the best vineyard. Fox argues that King refers to the boy in this story. The Song of Songs was not written by King Solomon. Its author is a mystery. Does Meek believe that the verses are the remains of an ancient tradition of love poetry between the king and a goddess? Like Inanna and Dumuzi's love songs, the verses of the Song of Songs are based on popular songs that weaving workshops or field workers sang in choirs. These songs are likely polyphonic. Old Testament songs were deemed appropriate for singing in public because of their religious significance and lack of association with the sacrosanct institution of marriage. As a result, 
Sumerian and Akkadian love songs made their way into the general cultural heritage through the medium of folk songs. Lyrics from the East and long-standing customs, Inanna and Dumuzi, are ancient Sumerian love songs that are examples of a long tradition of writing Eastern love songs. In addition to serving in the sacred marriage rite, these songs probably arose from folklore traditions associated with agricultural festivals. As time passed, they were written down in the Sumerian and Akkadian languages, but transmitted orally during popular village feasts. The procession of the god statues through the streets was considered a public feast, but banquets were not just held at temples for these occasions. Sacred marriage rite songs in Akkadian are similar to Sumerian prototypes, and these songs became part of the folk tradition when the sacred marriage rite disappeared. The court poets composed marriage songs for the divine couple during the first millennium. New Babylonian songs about Nabu and Tamatu, Marduk and Zarpanitum, and other divine couples indicate a return of the sacred marriage rite. Nabu and Tasmatu converse as two lovers who go to the bedroom to make love, and many of the characteristics of these songs are echoed in the Song of Songs, implying a similar period. It's a mountain, a wall, a gloom cast by the cypress and cedar trees, a woman whose body is covered in precious stones, the act of gathering fruits, the twittering of birds. It is amazing how metaphorical language has stayed the same throughout the ages and in different cultures. Inanna's influence can be found throughout the Song of Songs. There is a verse in the Song of Songs that directly references the planet Venus, and there are even love lyrics that date back thousands of years about Inanna and Dumuzi. It is terrifying to face an army with banners. 610. The boy and the girl will make a pudendum, Yura, out of lapis lazuli, and decorate it with golden stars on the 28th day, the day of the sheepfold. As part of the many incantations for Inanna and Dumuzi, when Inanna sought help to cure a sick person, the pudendum was made of lapis lazuli and decorated with silver stars. When you pronounce the sick person's name, the pudenda, while honeycomb, honey and milk are under your tongue, the boy sings about his girl's lips dropping honey, while Inanna compares Dumuzi to the honeyman in the Song of Songs. There's a knock on the door of the girl's house. Is it okay if the lover enters? She says she isn't dressed to receive him. How should she greet him? How should she greet him? How should she greet him? After that, something quite mysterious happens. I am smitten and wounded, and my veil is taken from me by the keepers of the walls. It seems that the torture she suffered was reminiscent of what happened to Getinana, Dumuzi's sister, when the Gala demons hunted Dumuzi and forced her to betray his hiding place when they were hunting Dumuzi. Her face was torn open, and her womb was filled with boiling tar after she was tortured by the demons. Despite this, Getinana was not betrayed. Ancient love songs and rituals may have been spread abroad by various means, such as traveling singers or others who adapted them to their cultures. Inanna was still remembered as the love goddess, and the poetry of her love lyrics remained, even though she was no longer a partner of the king. Getinana was not betrayed. Ancient love songs and rituals may have been disseminated across the globe through various channels, such as by traveling singers or others who adapted them to their own cultures. Even though Inanna was no longer the king's sexual partner, people continued to revere her as the goddess of love, and the poetry of her love songs was passed down through the generations. It is abundantly clear that these love songs, fertility songs in ancient times, 
were of such vital importance to the religious life of the people that they could not be excluded from the Bible. 